This is Publishers Weekly Radio, the authority on all things books and publishing, with everything you need to know from your favorite books and the world in which they live to bestseller lists and publishing news. Here's the inside story on your favorite story. Publishers Weekly Radio, with your hosts, Rose Fox and Mark Rotella. Hello and welcome to Publishers Weekly Radio on the web at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio and streaming free on iHeartRadio and iTunes. I'm Rose Fox and I'm a reviews editor at Publishers Weekly. And I'm Mark Rotella, senior editor of Publishers Weekly. We're bringing you the very best of book talk directly from PW's offices in New York City, the heart of the book publishing world. On today's show, author Sharon Amir discusses her new novel, Invisible Beasts. Then PW Editorial Director Jim Milliot explains how changes at one book distributor could affect the entire publishing industry. But first, here's a sneak peek at next week's Publishers Weekly Bestseller List, powered by Nielsen Bookscan. There's a lot of movement on the fiction list. We have a new number one and a new number two. Uh, at number one is The Book of Life by Deborah Harkness. This is the third book in her All Souls trilogy, uh, following Shadow of Night. Uh, the Publishers Weekly Review says it's a delightful wrap-up to the trilogy. Uh, it features a witch historian, Diana Bishop, and her vampire husband, Matthew Claremont. Uh, they have headed off to Elizabethan England and now return to the present day. Uh, and they're looking for the last pages of a manuscript known as the Book of Life, which is the key to the origin of all supernatural beings. And they also have to contend with the internal politics of Matthew's extended vampire family. So wow. there's lots going on. And, uh, and vampires are still hot. Oh, vampires are absolutely still wow. hot. I see them all over romance, uh, fantasy novels as well, horror novels. Yeah. Um, I, I think that trend will never die, even if you put a stake through it. No kidding. <laughs> no, I, I, I think we're going wow. to continue seeing vampires for quite some time and you know this is this is a book coming out from viking this is a a mainstream right you know major novel uh sold uh, 51,000 copies in its first week out according to nielsen book scan so um yeah it's it's pretty impressive but uh obviously harkness's writing is very strong uh the review says there's no shortage of action and nearly every chapter brings a new wrinkle to the tale and the storytelling is lively and energetic with an appealing heroine. Mm. So right. that's, a, that's a formula guaranteed to please. Great. And werewolves, not so much. Werewolves, not so much. Though um, you still see them a lot in romance novels. Yeah. The, the beast man who can only be right. tamed by the love of a good woman. Right. That's, that's another trope that we're right, going right. to keep seeing in some form or another, even if they're not literal Right. Beast. But um, I also see a lot of other kinds of shapeshifters. So we've started getting you know, were bears and were were tigers. Mm. I have not right. yet encountered a were squirrel or a were platypus, but I'm sure it's only <laughs> a matter of time. So there's got to be someone out there for yeah. whom that sounds just fantastic. <laughs> sure. uh, so number two on the hardcover fiction list, uh, a bit of a change of pace, is the heist by Daniel Silva. Um, this is uh, following the success of the English Girl. Uh, which is the book that put him on the map, and uh, it features, once again, Gabriel Alone, who's uh, an art restorer and occasional spy. I, I, love, I love that description. That's, that's from the publisher's description. An occasional spy. You know, perhaps you know, Tuesdays and Fridays after dinner. Yeah, sure. <laughs> Let me see what my neighbors are doing. <laughs> right, you know, if I can fit it into my schedule, right, right. a bit of spying here and there. 
So he's looking for a, a stolen artwork by Caravaggio, and uh, this is, uh, you know, it's a spy novel. It's, I like the intrigue of the art world. Um, this seems to be one of those things that's uh, very popular with uh, both authors and readers. I think because art is both beautiful and valuable. It's not the same appeal as, as jewelry, but it's not as portable, and so it's more interesting to see how someone can get away get, with, with, a heist. with stealing it. Right. Um, so, you know, Silva has uh, been around for quite some time. Um, this is his 17th novel, I think. So um, you know, readers who know his work will know what to expect, and uh, they're certainly happy to buy his books. It sold 44,000 copies in its first oh, weekend. Impressive. Great. Uh, a little bit further down the list, at number six, we have a, another thriller. Uh, this is Cut and Thrust by Stuart Woods, um, the 30th novel featuring Stone Barrington. I love that name. Thrillers have the best names. Right. And uh, it's a politically-themed novel. It takes the debonair New York attorney to Los Angeles, uh, where he attends the Democratic National Convention. So you know, lots of politicking going on. You know, anything might happen at one of those big events. Right. Uh, and uh, our review says that this installment goes down as smoothly as a glass of Knob Creek. Mm, nice. So, again, one, one for the fans. Great. And finally, I just wanted to note a little bit further down the list at number 14, um, we have Wayfaring Stranger by James Lee Burke. We gave this a starred review in PW, call it a, an epic American saga, um, and, you know, it's, it's of the era of Bonnie and Clyde, and in fact, they make a brief appearance before right. uh, being notoriously gunned down, and then it jumps ahead to World War II, um, so there's a lot of excitement going on and uh, a lot of journey through not only America, but uh, also in Europe, you know, looking at things like you know, World War II all over the world this, um, and, and so forth. And, uh, and there's also a romance in it, uh, the, the building of a business and the post-war boom. So there's, there's a tremendous amount going on. Um, and you know, we say that uh, the quest uh, of the, the hero, Weldon Holland, to save his wife generates some suspense, but this is more morality tale than thriller. It's the story of one man's struggle to live with integrity in post-war America, and that Burke writes with great assurance and wisdom, as well as a kind of bitter nostalgia for lost innocence. Mm. So that, that sounds like it's got a a lot of emotional power to it. It sounds a little bit, uh, with the European angle, a little bit different for, for him, who I think often writes about Americana or Southern uh, themes. Mm-hmm. So it sounds a little bit different. Now, is, this still it, this definitely is, has the, the Southern theme. Right. Yeah, the business is an oil pipeline business in Texas. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I think there's probably just a, a brief detour overseas. Right. right. What's on the nonfiction list? Well, let's see. Number four debut, this is the uh, the highest debut we have, is a book about uh, Harper Lee, uh, the author of To Kill a Mockingbird. And uh, so the, 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 title of the, uh, the title of the book is called The Mockingbird Next Door, Life with Harper Lee. It's written by Margin Mills, uh, who's a former Chicago Tribune reporter. Uh, this is her first book. Back in 2001, the Chicago Tribune wanted her to write a piece on, on uh, Harper Lee. And she went down with the uh, cameraman, and they didn't really think that they were going to have much to talk to you, that she was going to give them much, give them much time, because she's famously reclusive. And, and sure enough, the 80-year-old woman uh, uh, decided to talk to them, and huh. talk to them 
at length and talked to uh, Margin Mills at length. So this is the book uh, that came out. Uh, we say while upfront about what few areas must remain off the record, uh, they, they call her Nellie. Uh, now, uh, this is basically, she said, to spare the feelings of the people still alive. Uh, Nell's sweet friendship with Mills elicits a forthcoming portrait of the author, her family, her time, and her South that is thoughtful, witty, and rich in feeling. So this is so this is at number four. It's been getting a lot of play. It's been getting covered a lot, and uh, news and TV has been picking up on this because it is, of course, Harper Lee and... Uh, not much is known about her. I mean, she's kind of like a, a J.D. Salinger. Yeah, but and has, hasn't she also been, uh, there, there's been a little bit of controversy around it that she now says it was unauthorized and right. Mills wasn't necessarily supposed to use the material she got in the way she did. Um, so I, I think probably it's also selling just because of the controversy. Oh, the controversy, exactly, exactly. Um, number 13, uh, we have a... Um, a book called Factory Man, How One Furniture Maker Battled Offshoring, Stayed Local, and Helped Save an American Town. And this is about uh, uh, Bassett Furniture Company, which is based in Virginia, uh, written by Beth Macy. Uh, this is, uh, she's a reporter for the Roanoke Times in Virginia. She was awarded the Anthony Lucas Work and Progress Award, which is a pretty prestigious award for nonfiction writers who submit mm-hmm. proposals. So, She's written this, um, and this is about the, the history of this company. Uh, it was one of the uh, biggest uh, wood furniture um, production companies in North America that started losing business in the 1980s due to what uh, uh, the author describes as cheap Chinese imports uh, coming, to, coming here. Here, uh, we, we say that it's a riveting narrative. Uh, which is rich in local color. It traces the history of the Bassett family from uh, the U.S. furniture trade, from the billowing smokestacks of southern towns all along uh, Route 58 to the imposing factory complex near uh, Dalian, China, and eventually to Vietnam and uh, Indonesia. Macy interviews the Bassett family, laid off and retired workers, all of them, uh, executives in Asia and many others, providing vivid reporting and lucid explanations of the trade laws and agreements that caused a way of life to disappear. So this is a big way of life, especially in the South, for furniture makers. Uh, we gave that a star review, and that's it, number 13. Uh, it sounds like it gets very in-depth about the, the politics. I don't usually right. expect a book about uh, trade laws to be super gripping and enthralling, but it, 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 it appears the author really put a human face on it. Exactly. By inter- exactly. By talking to the people involved, by talking to, I mean, uh, you know, retired workers, people who have spent their lives, given their lives working on, on furniture. And, and uh, there's something about whittling or uh, making furniture, something that goes in someone's houses that seems seem very personal right there. Mm. And that's what we have. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, Sharona Muir tells us how to see the world around us in a whole new way. We'll be right back. Welcome back. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Today, we've got Sharona Muir on the line. Her new novel is Invisible Beasts. Sharona, thanks so much for joining us. It's a pleasure, Mark. So tell us about this book. Well, I started writing this book um, partly as a game with a pair of biologist friends. I live in the country, in rural Ohio, 
and I have a couple of friends who have revived a prairie. Uh, we kind of share the same wild bees, is the way I think of it. And um, I had finished a very serious book, a memoir, and I wanted to do something for fun. So I started creating these imaginary animals based on scientific facts. I would find some scientific facts on the web that really intrigued me, and I would build an imaginary animal around them. And then I take them to my friends and say, uh, what do you think? Have I made a really imaginary animal that still has some scientific plausibility? And they would kind of laugh at me and they would say, um, there actually is something very much like that. So what I learned from this game was that no matter what I came up with, and I had great, great fun uh, trying to come up with really wild animals, um, whatever I could imagine, nature had already done. At one point, I decided, well, you know, I'm going to go into physics, okay? And I made a little animal. It's in a story called the golden egg that um, exists because it does cold nuclear fusion. It's like a tiny little nuclear power plant. And I thought, this does not exist in nature. I've got all the physics right. I've got all the biology right. And it's this really cool animal. So I went to my friends, and they smiled, and they said, well, in principle, it's possible, and we don't know what's out there. And that really gave me the chills, because I realized that we don't know what's out there. There are so many species out there that are uncatalogued, that are unresearched, that exist in places, everything from our bodies to remote uh, geographical locations that we really don't know. And not to mention the fact that a lot of these are dying off very fast, you know, before we can even imagine that they're there, let alone catalog them. So um, thinking about this, I got inspired with the idea of collecting these animals to make a book. So you, you were inspired to write a book about, about these animals, and it's arranged like a field guide. Did you know yeah. going into that this is how you wanted to do it? It seemed like the logical way to do it. It seemed as though every animal deserved its little chapter, and each chapter is kind of like the adventure that I had creating the animal. But also, um, as I made these things, I was thinking of the medieval bestiaries, uh, and that may sound very arcane, but they're actually quite wonderful. Um, and, you know, you can find them on Amazon if you're really interested. Um, these are books that were written pretty much from Roman times through the Middle Ages, well before printing. They were beautifully illustrated. They had wonderful pictures of animals. And they were put together by monks, mostly. Um, what they were trying to do was collect all the information they had about animals and put them in books. But because they didn't have science then, uh, they would make each animal the center of a fable, and the point of that fable would be wisdom. Wisdom for them meant connecting it to um, religion and to myth. So, for example, there's a very charming story in one bestiary about how um, a lioness will give birth to cubs, and they're dead. She gives birth to dead cubs. Then, after three days, the lion comes and breathes into their nostrils, and immediately they come to life. So the monk who wrote this concludes, this is just the way that, you know, our Lord rose after three days and was resurrected. So what this did for the people who read it, for the Europeans who read it, was comfort them um, that, you know, 
uh, in the wild forests in which they lived at the time, in the Middle Ages, um, even the wildest, scariest animals were still somehow connected to the way they understood the world, which was in terms of... Um, in terms of uh, Christianity and theology. Now, um, I love the medieval bestiaries because I think that they're extremely charming and poetic, and they, they go to the heart because you see such a, a love of animals and a wish to be connected with them somehow. But we live in a day when religion won't do it because religion is centered on human beings. It's all about how, you know, we're kind of the center of the universe. So I thought, well, what if we honor the reality of these animals, their difference from us, um, keep the poetry, keep the idea of the fable, but um, make the wisdom based in science, which tells us what the animal is really like. So really the medieval bestiaries were the template for that chapter-by-chapter chapter field guide approach. Each animal is the center of a fable. And each animal offers its own peculiar and sometimes comical wisdom to us. Uh, but I'm drawing that not from religion or from myth so much as from the actual facts that I can find that you know seem to speak to us of what nature has to say to us. So people aren't necessarily scared so much of the wild forest now. We're, we're more scared of the ways that we've tamed things about the effects that people have had on the environment. Do you find that your book might still bring a source of comfort by bringing back a little bit of the wilderness? Yes. Um, well, I think I address that question in two ways. One is to mourn the, you know, to mourn extinctions and to make them important. Uh, and there is a section in my book that is about extinct and endangered animals. Uh, because each extinction isn't just an extinction, in fact, it's also an extinction in what is available to human beings for our imaginative resources. You know, people will talk about how when an extinction happens, you know, that animal could have been a source of good drugs for medicine, that animal could have offered us who knows what. Um, what I feel as an artist is that animal expanded our imaginative horizon, extinction means that horizon is closing in. So um, I do talk about that with extinction. But for comfort, yes, I try to use the resources I have around me. I live near the Ottawa National Wildlife Refuge, uh, which has, it's on the shores of Lake Erie, it has a host of wonderful birds. Um, in fact, it's known as the warbler capital of the world in springtime because all the songbirds come through, all the gaily colored, beautiful warblers. And I live in a small forest. So I have tried to um, celebrate that and to offer it to the reader in a number of stories, as well as to show that um, this isn't just a matter of material resources. We really think in terms of animals. Our language is full of animal metaphors. We are animals, and that's the point that my uh, narrator makes in the introduction. Um, each of the beasts she looks at is invisible, but what she begins by saying is, human beings are the most invisible beasts because we don't think of ourselves as beasts. There's a wilderness in us. Uh, we don't think of ourselves as animals, as creatures, uh, as beasts and brutes. <laughs> you know, we're not accustomed. You, you, don't, you don't, uh, when you're going to Starbucks or, you know, picking up your child from school, you don't think of yourself as a beast or a brute. Uh, but we need a new language in order to explore that wilderness that is still within ourselves and to connect it to um, 
what remains of the wilderness that we have, and to understand our relationship with animals better, imaginatively as well as scientifically. So let's talk about the novel. Let's talk about um, Sophie, who's the narrator, the main character. She's an amateur naturalist. And she has this rare power to to detect animals that, that are invisible to nearly everyone else except for some of her family members. T- tell us about right. her and tell us about her this. Her grand-uncle and her nephew. Okay, so tell us about her and, um, and, and this gift that she has. Sophie is kind of like the consciousness of the book. She's, she's a little bit drawn from my experience because she does seem to live in the woods. Um, and she does see these invisible creatures. Um, and there's always a kind of hovering question in the book, which is, are the invisible creatures real, or is Sophie not? She has a biologist sister named Evie, and whenever Sophie really needs to understand uh, what the latest creature she's seen is about, she gives Evie a call. And Evie, who's very tolerant, uh, treats Sophie's invisible animals as if it were a thought experiment. Says, so well, you know, this is what I think is happening with that bird you saw. Um, so, really, Sophie was my way of humanizing the whole idea of, um, the, of the beasts, of a human being who sees creatures who are both imaginative and real. Um, and she's also kind of comical, you know, because she's constantly seeing things that other people aren't. So, and tell us a little bit about the animals. Uh, they have kind of amazing names, like Wild Rubber Jack. Oh, yeah. <laughs> the animals include very, very large animals, like the kraken, which is exactly the size of Antarctica. It's this enormous glass sponge. Uh, glass sponges are creatures that grow on the bottom of the Antarctic seas. The kraken covers, uh, it, it lives between the bottom of the glaciers and the bedrock of Antarctica, and it covers all of Antarctica that isn't exposed. Uh, so naturally, the melting of glaciers pose a, you know, an extinction problem for the kraken. And then there are the feral parfumier bees. Um, these are bees that create honey that has this amazing, amazing fragrance, and they do it um, kind of by accident. I should say that each animal in the book is prefaced by a question that has to do with the relationship of human beings to animals. So, for example, um, the feral parfumier bees were an answer to the question, can animals make art? Uh, It's a question that interests me because you do see animals making really amazing structures that um, inspire human art. Uh, or the wild rubber jack, for example, that you mentioned, was an answer to the question, um, how are animals affected by the urban environment? In real life, um, there are swallows that live in overpasses, and it's actually documented that their wings, they're evolving so that their wings are becoming shorter. Because if you're a swallow, you can get up from the highway to your overpass much faster with shorter wings, and that makes you less susceptible to becoming roadkill. So it's really fascinating that our own human civilization is producing evolution in other creatures. So I created the wild rubber jack who, you know, evolves basically to live on Wall Street uh, and to, um, to steal snacks out of the, the pockets of businessmen. Hmm. Um, yeah. And what significance do these animals have for the story and for Sophie? Well, for Sophie, 
her letter to the world, as Emily Dickinson called it. Sophie begins by saying that every few generations in her family, someone is born who sees invisible beasts. And the rest of her family, who are all biologists and scientists and have been for generations, treat that person with great tolerance and, uh, and good humor. Um, but this has never been exposed to the public eye. And she's quite aware that, you know, her bestiary or her field guide could be regarded as the production of a madwoman. But she feels that she has to come forward and talk about what she's seen, um, partly because she's concerned about the extinction of all animals, and partly because she feels guilty about one of them, one of them in particular, the foster fowl, which is one of the invisible beasts. It's a bird who uh, nurtures the young of other birds. It's a kind of emblem of... Um, charity and compassion. So Sophie feels that she's got to um, let people know that invisible beasts exist. And she wants to stop extinction by um, telling people about her philosophy, which is that human beings are the most invisible beasts because we don't see ourselves as beasts. This is what she's been thinking about her whole life. Her whole life she's been seeing these invisible creatures and she's been thinking, uh, but People don't see themselves as animals, so they're just, in a way, as invisible as the animals that I see. Uh, so what it means for her is coming out of the closet and offering a revelation. And for the story, the beast being invisible, I think, is a, a very flexible way for readers to approach the book. Um, it's fun if what you want is fantasy, and it's got a philosophical side to it, too. We're going to take a quick break, but don't go away. Welcome back. We're talking with Sharon Amira, who's the author of Invisible Beasts. And you're also the author of a nonfiction book, The Book of the Telling, about your father, who invented Israel's first rocket. What else did you find out about him when you were writing that book? My goodness. Um, I found out that my father had, inv had invented Israel's first rocket quite accidentally when I was a graduate student at Stanford, and I ran into a young man who's an engineer, uh, or an engineering student, and he told me that, he said, your father and my father were together during the independence war in Israel, and your father invented Israel's first rocket uh, as part of a secret group of scientists who were inventing weaponry at that time. And I said, no, 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 that's not true, because my father had never told me any such thing. He had died a number of years before. And I knew that he had been in Israel during 48. I, I had had never heard anything about uh, a secret group of scientists or anything like this. And, there, you know, there's so many fables that are generated by a war that I thought this was nonsense. But um, my friend was quite insistent. He gave me a number, the numbers of six scientists at the Weizmann Institute, uh, and I knew from their names that they were really the people who had founded Israel's nuclear physics. And he told me, give these people a call. They were all your father's dear friends. So uh, a number of years went by. Um, I was too shy. <laughs> and also, you know, after the death of a father, you want to hold on to your memories. And I didn't want some very distinguished scientist telling me, uh, sorry, this is a fable and you're kind of a crackpot. <laughs> but finally, I got up the courage, and I called a number at the Weizmann Institute, and they said, 
uh, Sharona, we've been looking for you ever since your father died. Um, and I said, well, did my father invent some kind of rocket? They said, yes, it was Israel's first rocket. So in 1995, I went over and investigated the whole thing. Well, investigated is a fancy word. I went over and asked these scientists if they would um, tell me their stories. They did, and they introduced me around. Um, and I learned extraordinary things about the growth and the basis of Israel's technology in this tiny group of people who ended up being uh, really the founders of Israel's defense and civilian technology. So when you call it the book of the telling, what is the telling in question? The telling, that title is taken from Passover liturgy, which says that each generation must tell the story of coming out of Egypt as if it had been for the first time. Um, And I begin with a question, how do I tell this? Although it didn't happen to me, I didn't create a state. Uh, I didn't invent weapons out of, you know, water pipes and and uh, very limited resources and uh, develop them into a modern state technology. How do I tell this so that it becomes my telling? And what I do is answer that through the memoir by bringing in memories of my father and our relationship together with the story of the scientists so that it becomes personal. Um, And that really is a kind of allegory for the way that everybody has to deal with reinventing their lives from what they learn uh, as, they, as, as we live. You know, we, we get new information about who we are and where we come from. And at each point, we have to recreate our telling. Uh, so that's what the telling is about. So that was a book of nonfiction, and, and this one, The uh, Invisible Beast, is fiction. Right. What was it like for you to make the transition? It was glorious. In what, in what way? <laughs> it was perfectly wonderful. You know, the book of telling, it, it, was a grand, it was a grand adventure because I was talking to Israel's first tycoon. I was talking to the man who invented Israel's water system. I, I was connecting all of these people to everything that had made my father dear to me, his wild imagination, his inventiveness. But it was also extremely painful. The 48 War is a horrendously painful story. Um, and I was crying over my notes. And then, you know, it brings up all of the loss of a beloved father. So when I wrote Invisible Beasts, um, I really decided from the start, I'm going to do this for fun. I'm going to do it for myself. I don't know what this book is. <laughs> I mean, imaginary animals based on real science with somebody who sees invisible creatures is not your normal formula for a bestseller. I thought, I'm going to, going to ignore everything the literary market has to say about what's a good book and what isn't. I'll just do this because it's in me. And it was wonderful. I had great fun doing it. My biologist friends had fun, too. Um, and I laughed instead of crying while I was writing. So you, you, it seemed like you approached this novel in, in, in a similar way that you did the, uh, um, the book of the telling, in that you mm-hmm. did research. Yes. Yeah. Um, yes, I think that's fundamental. It may come from being the daughter of an inventor, but I'll tell you how mm. my father did research, and maybe I've inherited this from him. Uh-huh. Uh, he was a freelance inventor, one of the... <laughs> Really, he used to call himself a Yankee tinkerer, and it was fun, funny that he said that, because he said it with a, with a strong Slovakian accent. Uh, and uh, he really did create stuff in the basement of his house. He created um, the first 
remote controlled catheter, which was the um, the prototype that launched Boston Scientific, which is a big technology company on the East Coast that bought it from him. Hmm. Um, wow. So you know he he was kind of this mad scientist, invent machines in your basement type. Um, and for that, he required knowledge. He would do the research. But it was really his imagination that led him. When I was a little girl, uh, he would tell me that if he had a really bad problem, he would go to sleep, and he, he said Mother Nature would come to him and talk to him about the solutions. So I asked him, well, what does she look like? And he said, well, she looks like a, a beautiful lady who sits in a golden egg. I used that golden egg for the golden egg in my mm. um, in Invisible Bees. And I think that that kind of typifies the approach. You do all the research, you learn about and celebrate uh, the nature of the material world, but your way of celebrating that, because you're human, is to transfigure it with imagination. And you're also a creative writing professor. How does teaching influence your own writing? Um, teaching's a wonderful resource because it's a noble profession. And I think it influences me in two ways. One way is that it keeps you in touch with the basics. When you're dealing with beginning writers, you're always returning to those sort of fundamental truths of craft or problems of craft, and it refreshes you. It keeps you from kind of spinning off on your own your own thing. You know, you're always being brought back to a, well, I had a karate teacher who once uh, used to say, uh, when you get your black belt, the first thing you need to do is go back and rehearse all the white belt exercises. Hmm. So I get to do that. You know? And you find out kind of, you get deeper and deeper into the most basic things, and that is very, very rewarding and fruitful. The other thing is that um, it's a really beautiful thing to be able to make a light come on in someone's eyes. I think that my students are so accustomed to thinking that, you know, you've got to be famous or you've got to have some amazing app um, in order to be allowed to uh, respect yourself. Or, well, they have imaginations, but they don't feel that they're allowed to use them often, um, although those imaginations are driving them to a creative writing class. So they have the motivation. Mm. And to be able to guide that a little and to, to see the moment when someone realizes, hey, you know, I've made something new that everyone's excited about, that's just beautiful, and it's very inspiring. And you mentioned um, writing Invisible Beasts as kind of a, a game, playing a game. Is that something that you recommend to your students, that you would recommend maybe to our listeners who might be interested in trying their own hands at creative writing? Sure. You know, I would say um, it's really about uh, pushing yourself into the strange zone, having fun, um, and sticking with it. You know, um, I think I've heard from a lot of people that they think you have to have a, a big ego. You have to feel that what you've got to say is terribly important in order to where to write it and publish it. And that's nonsense. Um, you don't begin with your ego. You don't begin by thinking, oh, I'm going to say something terribly important. It's not about you. It's about, um, it's about creating something new in the world. And a bacterium can do that. And they do do that. They created oxygen. Uh, you know, 
lots of animals can play games. The foxes out behind my barn are always inventing new games that they play often with dog toys that we left in the woods. Um, playing is part, and playing and creating, I think, is something that every creature does. So you need to find that and just just enjoy. Take up a pen, start playing, um, and then you know there will. If if you want to make that into a piece of writing that stands for you, then you'll want to find out about how to make it beautiful, how to refine it, polish it. Um, but it begins with that sense of play and it's the sense of risk. You know, that's just what we get as a reward for being alive and for being part of a creative uh, nature. Sounds like wonderful advice. Well, we've been talking with Sharona Muir. You can find her book, Invisible Beast, in stores right now. Sharona, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. Thank you very much. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, PW Editorial Director Jim Milliot reveals the hidden influence of book distributors, so stay tuned. Welcome back. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox. You're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Every week we get insider info from Publishers Weekly editors and contributors. And today, PW Editorial Director Jim Milliot tells us how Ingram became Ingram Publisher Services and what that means for the industry. Hello, Jim. Hey, Mark. Hey, Rose. Good Hi to there. be with you. So we've got a big article coming out uh, on Monday uh, that Judith Rosen wrote for us. And tell us about, first of all, Tell us about what's happening, and then I want to backtrack a little bit. Sure. Well, the genesis of the uh, article on distribution and distributors has a couple of different um, reasons behind it. Uh, One is which we haven't done one in a while. (laughs) And the second one is in um, late May, Perseus uh, Books Group, which was uh, a book publisher, but what most people may not realize, the largest distributor of books was sold or is going to be sold. The deal should close you know, early August at the latest. And in that, uh, the, the publishing operation is going to Hachette Book Group, but mm-hmm. its um, distribution business, which handles sales um, and uh, fulfillment for about 350 different publishers, is going to Ingram, and specifically to Ingram Publisher Services. So let's back up just a little bit and talk about... Uh, about distribution, about book distribution. I mean, it, we're in an industry where when people buy a book, they look at the title, they look at the subject, they look at the author. Very rarely do they even look at a publisher. I mean, you don't, you know, it's not on the, uh, 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 on the tips of tongues of your average reader. But what, what exactly, let's talk about book distribution for many of our listeners out there. You mean people don't know what IPS is? Yeah, right, 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 exactly. <laughs> uh, well, sure. So, What's happened in the in the publishing industry over a course of the years is there are, you know, literally thousands and thousands of outlets to try to get books into. And if you're a smaller publisher, you can try to do that on your own, but it requires a lot of resources. You have to hire a sales force. You have to have um, a warehouse. You have to have inventory systems that can track all that stuff. So if... If you're really not big enough to really leverage all of that, it's better off in many cases to simply outsource that, if you will, to another company. Mm -hmm. And what's grown up over time 
is, is two ways you can do this. One are with these independent uh, distributors, uh, of which Perseus, as we said, was the largest, but there's others out there, such as uh, Independent Publishers Group, or IPG, mm-hmm. and National Book Network, NBN. And what they do is they more or less act as an aggregator of sorts in that, um, well, let's take IPG. They have over 100 uh, clients. So they'll... Um, sell all their book. They'll put all their books into one bag, if you will. They have their own sales forces. They'll go to the national accounts. They'll go to um, retail stores, either be it um, the traditional trade stores or what they would call specialty stores. You know, your urban outfitters of the world that may not, you know, sell books on a regular basis, but that might be interested in some titles. And they'll go and, you know, sell your book there, along with dozens of others. Mm-hmm. Um, they get the order, and then they do the fulfillment, um, which is actually you know, shipping the book to the account. So wow. Do, do they also distribute to libraries, or is that an entirely separate system? No, they, some distribute to libraries as well. That can be a little bit more specialized. Um, not all of them reach every outlet. Um, but they get into a fair amount. And what has you know, happened... Um, in the distribution land, as it has happened everywhere else, is the, the growth of ebooks. Um, it can be even more head scratching and resource uh, gobbling up to get your ebooks distributed to the e-tailers in the world. Mm. So, if you're with a distributor, and every one of the distributors we've talked about uh, today already have the ability to take your uh, your digital file and distribute that book to virtually any uh, e-tailer, not only in the United States, but abroad. So this is what these distributors are already doing. So so what does this mean for, say, uh, Penguin Random House publishing services? Well, that's the other arm of this whole thing. There, have, there are a lot of, as we said, these independent um, distributors, but um, traditional publishers and houses have often acted um, as distributors as well, picking up other lines that you know, might complement um, the the titles they already have, and what's happened in um, the, the digital world is publisher the larger publishers have have made a calculation that they either want to go big in the distribution fulfillment business or they want to get out. Mm-hmm. And Harper Collins and Macmillan, for example, have really downsize their warehousing, outsource it a bit, and don't really want to have what people in the industry and other places would call fixed costs. You know, you have to pay thousands or millions of dollars to keep up your warehousing and all that. Um, The other side, we have Penguin Random House, Simon & Schuster, and Hachette, which decided, all right, we already have built <laughs> these big warehouses. Mm. And Some of them are like 6,000 plus. 600,000. 600, I'm sorry, right. 600,000 right, square right, feet. Right, right, So, but as the sale of their own print books has declined, they have these warehouses that are in danger of being empty. Well, not empty, but not as filled as they once were. Mm-hmm. So to make up for that volume, they've gone out and actively solicited um, business from other publishers mm-hmm. and to start, or well, not start up, but expand their own distribution businesses. And this has the effect of, you know, we all know about economies of scale and leveraging your size. This has the same effect as, as doing that. So Random House, for instance, um, 
has added clients over the years to to make sure that its um, warehouse and other uh, fulfillment functions are you know operating at capacity. So now the trade-off, if you're a, a publisher looking to get a distributor, is well, if you're with Penguin Random House, you get absolutely first-class distribution systems and fulfillment, and nobody will argue that. And what does that mean by for, like in it, in the uh, class of in the class of distribution? <laughs> well, for instance. Uh, they're pretty quick. Right. Um, they won't lose your order. Right. And um, they'll pay you pretty promptly. Pretty promptly, so, right. So right. That's, that's great. Um, so, so money gets routed through the distributor as well, I guess, because the bookstore will buy from the distributor and the distributor passes that along. Right. No matter, no matter what type of distributor you're with, you're going to get paid. If you're a Mark Rotella Publishing and you're using NBN, you're going to get paid by NBN. Mm. Now... Some, as we said, one of the pluses for using that is, you know, whether it be NBN or Penguin Random House, they have more clout. They're likely to get paid before Mark Rotella Publishing, that may only be a $500,000 house. I mean, people <laughs> are going to. I mean, it's Mark Rotella <laughs> Publishing after all. <laughs> uh, people are going to pay Penguin Random House. I would bet, before they play Mark Rotella. So that is one of the benefits, uh, that's a big benefit, actually, of um, you know, being with a bigger house. Mm-hmm. What you don't get is, you're, like I say, you're at the mercy of somebody else's rep selling right. your book. So you might feel more comfortable. You know, I want the um, interaction with the buyer at Amazon, let's say. Um, you know, I want to reach out and talk to people at Barnes & Noble because I think this, I have a real, um, a real special take on what this book is. And you also, I mean, your distributors will give you analytic, analytics about, you know, what's selling, what's selling where. But you, you, you do have to fit into their system. So if you want something special, it may be a little more difficult to do. Right, like if I hear Rose Fox Publishing, I'm publishing a whole line of uh, very obscure science fiction novels from the 1950s that should have been classics. Um, there's a short list of bookstores that are going to be interested in selling those books, and we'll have the, the customers who are interested in buying them. And so I would need a distributor who understands that part of the genre and knows to talk with those bookstores and so forth because if they just try and pitch it to Barnes and Noble Barnes and Noble is going to put it on a shelf in the back somewhere and it will never sell I know that's exactly right and that's why you know independent distributors you know exist now and there are some you know they don't typically cater too much to um, categories although some are better than others I mean consortium for instance started up as you know literary fiction and non-fiction distributor you know mm-hmm. they were acquired a number of years ago by Perseus and so that means they'll be part of Ingram but this you know they did start up that sort of way in in trying to have a little bit of a, of a broad niche not too fine a niche but certainly to uh to put like-minded publishers together now right. we, uh, we could say oh you know we have you know every important cookbook publisher in the world so we're going to go out and right. sell well, because it was, I, and I remember uh, PGW, Publishers Group West, seemed to have a common theme. You look at their books, and they seem to be like, okay, I could see why P- PGW is distributing this. I mean, it they, they seemed to be, as you said, like, uh, or similar publishers, or right. similar kinds of books, almost as if they had a philosophy of, of doing that. Not all distributors were like that, but a couple of them, you could almost tell. Right, absolutely. Now, PGW is a, is a, you know, a great example, because 
they were really the first you know independent distributor right. startup and they did i mean it was they're based out in berkeley and there was a certain sort of uh, you know, hipster look to it and, right. you know, kind of cutting edge type of thing. And it's certainly, um, you know, an image they cultivated and a brand and a reputation they cultivated, not the least of which was through parties at uh, BEA. At BEA, exactly. <laughs> that exactly. started way later than a lot of people uh, were going to be around town. Right, you know. right, <laughs> right. Well, they are going to be, as we said, part of Ingram Publishers Services once the deal's closed. And if history is any gauge, they'll probably be left alone by and large. I'm sure some things will change a bit. But they have operated, they have their own management, uh, they have their own sales force, and they have, I mean, when Ingram does this, they're going to have close to 500 um, publishers that they'll be um, selling for. You can't do that through one huge organization. Right. You have to have them broken down into some way. Right. And kind of sort of along the lines we've talked about uh, just now. Right. So they'll be main- maintaining their own their own names, uh, their own clients, uh, in and distributing their own you know their own kinds of books similar to the way how publishing houses now have you know there's the five big ones but within them there were all those smaller houses such as Scribner or what have you right which still have their own identity right i mean in some ways you could think of you know um distributor clients as imprints right and you know in the old days um some of the distributors did build their list along the lines of thinking you know, mm-hmm. these are imprints and we don't want them to compete with each other if they don't have to. Right. And how can these complement each other? Right, right. So the title of this article is What's Ahead for Distribution? Do we have a definitive answer or some, some solid guesses? Or is this just looking at these deals that are in the works that we already are fairly confident are going to be locked in place? Well, I think what's ahead is uh, a little bit, they've come through the digital transition in good shape. People were wondering what would happen to them as much as what was happen to publishers, and that the role of distributors is going to be still important because, as we said before, now that you're trying to reach prints and digital outlets, it's kind of almost doubles the outlets you have to get to. Mm-hmm. So it, it pays to work with uh, an organization that can reach as, um, you know, dozens and dozens of different outlets, especially on the digital side, especially when you consider that, um, you know, e-books can travel abroad. And there's a lot of accounting involved in all that that you may not necessarily want to be involved in if you don't have to be. So we still have some some uh, now they used to not be small, but in light of Ingram, now somewhat smaller distributors like Baker and Taylor, and maybe IPG or right. what's going to happen with them. So these are all uh, all companies that are distributing the books that get books into the hands of well into bookstores and then to the hands of readers. Right, right. Yeah. Well, Baker and Taylor is a little. They're more like Ingram. And, you know, started off as more, more or less a traditional wholesaler mm-hmm. and now have bought a company that is more active in distribution itself. Right. Because that's the important distinction, you know, without getting too inside publishing here. You know, wholesalers, the traditional ones really just fulfilled the order. But if you're a distributor, right. you sell it, you know, and you collect the money, which is, you know, really important. Right. You go right. around and you make those pitches to the right. various Right, right, outlets. right, right. Um, 
you know, not to go too far off topic, but when you hear some self-publishers today say, well, you know, where can I buy my book? And you say, well, Ingram and Baker and Taylor have it in stock. Well, that doesn't really do any good because <laughs> they'll both, they'll stock pretty much any book that somebody gives them that has an ISBN. Um, but unless you're with a distributor, Ingram is, Baker and Taylor is not going to sell your book. They'll mm -hmm. just have it either digitally shelved or in their, one right. of their warehouses. So you're not going to have reps uh, going right. around uh, right. touting your book. Right, yeah. yeah. Mark Rotella yeah. Publishing could have all the, uh, <laughs> all, the all the titles they want in the Ingram <laughs> right. Warehouse, but if you don't have a rep selling it, who's going to find it? <laughs> right, exactly. And that's especially an issue right now because there are so many more books than there used to be. And, and even before self-publishing, that was true, that the output of the industry kept increasing. And then self-publishing, it just kind of exploded. So now... Uh, uh, you know, there's 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 constant conversation at least in my little end of the genre industry that you used to be able to read all the science fiction novels published in the year and mm -hmm. decide which one you like the best and that was what you voted for in the awards um, and you can't do that anymore you cannot hope to read even even a significant fraction of all the science fiction novels published in a year let alone also all the romance novels and the mystery novels and the general fiction novels so right, right. it's really important to have someone pushing your book to the stores uh, the stores then push your book to the customer that's well that's that's absolutely right and it touches on something you i'm sure you've talked about in other shows you know discoverability mm -hmm. i mean that's you know the catchphrase of the moment and it's it's true it's and it's just what rose was talking about um in this world with lots of choices you know for books and everything else you need you need somebody out there on your side uh telling your story so do you have any suggestions for people who are self-publishing, who are trying to figure out how to make distribution happen, not just warehousing, but, but really how to enhance their discoverability? Do these services ever work with indie authors? Absolutely. Um, in different ways. Um, Ingram has something called Ingram Sparks, which is really geared towards um, the self-publisher. But if... And this goes towards anything a self-publisher is doing. If you really can present a business plan, maybe a little bit of sales history, and you're acting like a, a true professional, and you can document to these people that you will mean business for them, then you, you'll have a chance to get in the door. Mm. Um, you can't just go in and say, will you please sell my book? <laughs> because I, I really like it. Uh, that's just not going to fly. If you really, and, you know, a business, like I said, a business plan, if you had any sort of sales history at all, that shows, you know, like I've done pretty, even if it's in a geographic region, you know, I've sold 10,000 copies or 5,000 copies in my city or something, you know, I just I'm trying to ramp it up. Well, you know, that could get you in the door. Mm -hmm. Sure. Well, thank you so much, Jim. It's really great to have your insights, as always. Glad to be here. Thank you, Jim. And that's it for today's show. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and you've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. Join us next week when we'll be interviewing Maximilian Potter about his intriguing new book, Shadows in the Vineyard. And as always, we'll have lots of juicy insider info on best-selling books and the nuts and bolts of publishing. In the meantime, you can find this and every episode of Publishers Weekly Radio on our website at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio, and also on iHeartRadio and iTunes, available for you to listen absolutely free. So check the site every week for a brand new episode, giving you the inside story on your favorite story. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio Show. 